0: and NeuroCurious, a podcast about all things brain, body, mind, and culture, not necessarily in that order. I'm Deborah Budding, joined by co-hosts Jamie Jones and Peggy Schaefer. Good morning. Hello. Um, So today's episode is, oh, we've been really excited about this. Um, We're going to be delving into the confusing world of social skills, where many a neurotypical and non-neurotypical person has flailed. Hmm. So what is the point of having social skills? and what is exactly or what is actually important, uh, as opposed to kind of coercive training and and compliance focus. Um, So we're joined by Kelly Priest, who uh, specializes in helping uh, non-neurotypical people better navigate the neurotypical world and uh, helping both typical and non-typical people uh, understand each other better. So, welcome Kelly.
1: Thank you very
0: much, Erin. Good
2: to be here. So, Kelly, tell our listeners a little bit about what you're currently doing professionally.
1: Okay. Um, I currently focus very broadly on social learning. So, um, I do run a few small social learning groups, uh, very well-matched, very um, kind of eclectic small groups, and I do a lot of individual work. Um, supporting individual students in their social learning. I do a lot more work these days on working with adults to help support kids with social learning challenges mm-hmm. in ways that respect the kids' need for dignity, their mental health, their what I call essential okayness. So I do a lot of work with teachers supporting social learning in the classroom in a very naturalistic, embedded way. Um, And I do a lot of parent education. I have a parent education group that I run for parents, specifically of children with an autism spectrum diagnosis. Um, But I also do a lot of individual work with parents on supporting kids' social learning. I also do some professional development training with speech therapists, occupational therapists, that sort of thing. Mm
2: -hmm. So talk for a minute about the notion of social learning. How is social learning different than say more traditional quote unquote social skills?
1: Well, it's a little bit of semantics here, but I do believe that language is important because it reflects our thinking and our emotions and our beliefs about things. So, to me, social learning is a, the broader term of, uh, that applies to everyone. Um, we're all evolving social learners, as Michelle Winner, the founder of social thinking, has said many times, and it's true. So, um, social learning is the bigger picture term. Um, social skills, to me, is more connected with the behavioral manifestation of our social learning. Um, and social thinking, uh, which was a kind of an approach, a cognitive behavioral approach to teaching social, um, which like I said was developed by Michelle Winner, is more that cognitive aspect of the thinking behind our social behavior and our social interaction. And kind of verbally based. So I think... One of the things I like about your
0: approach and the way you do things is that you kind of include consideration of both top-down, sort of cognitive, Mm language-driven things Mm -hmm. combined with the bottom-up aspects of self-regulation, sensory challenges, and and understanding the ways in which those two things have to be integrated with each other.
1: Thanks. I I would say even more bottom-up than that, I also address um, social learning on a cultural level. Yes, an implicit um, bias. Yes, mm-hmm. and um, social learning from uh, the standpoint of uh, understanding ourselves as uh, multicultural beings and that you know yes. all of those different identities that we carry um, gender-based, racial, um, socioeconomics, all of those things affect our social interaction, Um, and so does that other um, angle of ability or disability or neurological difference. That's a legitimate and vital aspect of our multicultural identity. So, yeah, it it sounds like a lot to bite off (laughs) to do all of that. But that's human. That's yeah. That's, yeah. that's what
0: being a person entails.
1: And it right? lets me be authentic and everything that I am when I'm working with a student or working with parents and lets them be a whole person, too.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. 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 I like it.
0: Um, so, one of the things we were thinking about asking you to talk about a little bit is kind of sharing your Your process in terms of how you think about social social function and actually more in terms of how you've come to embrace, um, not that you didn't before, but increasingly identify as someone um, committed to neurodiversity and to the larger goal of not just helping non-neurotypical people navigate the typical world right. as effectively as possible, but, but to also help people who are more typical find those intersections um, where, again, where everybody gets to be who they are and, right. and supporting and accepting of each other so that your trainings are not just for people on the spectrum. For example, you are doing trainings in schools with larger communities and helping everybody deal with each other more effectively.
1: I would say that's probably been one of the biggest areas of growth for me uh, professionally and personally in the last several years. I could point to a lot of different um, light bulb moments, those aha moments, Um, but being educated uh, about the medical model of disability versus a social model of disability was one clear uh, component that was helpful to me. So the medical model um, being based more in looking at deficits compared to a quote, "healthy um, organism. Right. Um, that model presumes that all uh, that the disability is um, based on the deficit or impairment of the individual. That it is, it represents something wrong with the individual, and that it is therefore that individual's obligation to conform in order to minimize the disability. Right, and there's um, in that model, it, it also happens to be that you know that the disability can only be remedied. By professionals with specialized knowledge,
2: right? Yes, mm-hmm. right. <laughs> it's
1: all about it's all about cure. cure. Yes, right, exactly. It's all about cure, and apparently bleach is a cure. Right. There what, are lots from of from well, heard. you can go down a lot of really
2: I, ugly, ugly rabbit trails. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and
1: non-productive yeah. and not not yeah. healthy. Uh, the The essential question is: Is it healthy? Right. Yeah. So the, the social model of disability really holds that it's the intersection of the person's abilities mm-hmm. and um, their environment or their society, which includes the people and the physical environment around them, and that, that is more relevant.
0: Right, and that disability is to some degree contextual, right? Right. So what is considered disabling really depends on what the environment is is asking of you in any given time. So it's also not to minimize. One of the things that I've heard sort of levied toward uh, from the the kind of more medical uh, view of things toward a neurodiverse view is that it minimizes disability. Um, And that is not... My goal at all, I think disability is is very real and needs supports right um, and that's not what I really yeah.
1: hear from neurodiversity activists no, either no, no. I never mm-hmm. hear them minimizing the impact of disability. no, but don't you hear people lobbying that? I do i I them? hear that, but I think that is that's just one of many. Um, ways that the broader culture has of minimizing the voices of people with disabilities. Right. And differences of any kind, really. But um, particularly when it comes to a social learning disability, mm-hmm. um, which you could compare, it's always an imperfect comparison, but you could compare it to a reading learning disability or whatever. Um, when you look at it from that point of view, then. You know, really the impact is pervasive. Yes. If you leave your room. So, you know, it's a little flippant, but I'd heard someone say a long time ago, there's a little kernel of truth to this that, you know, nobody has Asperger's when they're in their room doing what they prefer to do, what they're great at doing. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Because mm-hmm. it is contextual, like right. you said. Mm-hmm. Right. So Right. Well,
0: and one of the things that, that um real social skills, who we all follow on twitter well those of us who are on twitter um <laughs> <laughs> not now <laughs> okay go on uh what we talk about uh sometimes is also this notion um that if you're on the autism spectrum um you know you better not share what you like because it will be used against you as a mm-hmm. as a uh, a reinforcer, as a reinforcer. Right. right that can be taken sure. away right. from you that can be taken away from you to in order to you know, assist your quote unquote social function, and and so this is one of the things that I think is important to talk about um, is trying to move away and help other people move away from more of the kind of coercive aspects of how um, when we think about kids with disabilities, how social skills are is, is trained for them, right? Right.
1: Training being the uh-huh. operative exactly word. So yeah, I I don't use. Um, tangible reinforcers in no token my work. system? I don't use a token mm-hmm. system, partly because, um, let's be honest, I, I have ADHD myself, and I can't manage the organizational challenge of <laughs> being connected with all of these children <laughs> and being present and right? also managing... Uh-huh the tokens uh, and who got what tokens yeah, right. uh-huh. and how that's it, that's just not the way my brain works i have a disability it when nice it comes to, I to that <laughs> well, but the more importantly yeah. for the students that i work with um that to me that that sends the message that um social behavior is a thing to be produced yeah for the reward yes. of a star yes, or right. friendship bucks or yep. a token or whatever. And it undermines what we really wanna teach or share or open up um, the possibility of is that there is a, a part of social interaction that can be inherently rewarding Now, it might not look the same for some of my students as it does for me. Their needs may be different from mine. Mine might be different from Jamie's or Peggy's. You Mm -hmm. know, what's satisfying for me might be different than what's satisfying for my students. So who am I to give them friendship bucks for producing behaviors that I think might lead to some imagined, desired social outcome? But really... Right. If we look at what's, um, what's really valid in the field, which in my case means on the playground or on a play date or at a scouting well, meet, you know, I'm not really sure that all these things that we think translate. They don't know, D- And, and I
3: think what you're hitting on for me when, I, when I'm when i hearing this is there's also this assumption, especially within the autistic community, that they don't have a desire right. to have these right. social interactions. And, in fact, that's completely false. I mean, there may be difficulty with engaging and navigating them, but to say that they don't have a desire to have
0: friendships or relationships is false. Well, is. but also uh, the, the idea that, you know, that maybe if somebody isn't desiring to try to interact with you, it's because you're being a jerk.
2: Right. <laughs> right. Right. So it's because
0: right. it's not because they don't want relationships right. with you, it's because you're treating them appallingly. Could be, but you it know? could be that your perfume
1: is too Correct. strong. Right, That's right. It could That's be right. that um your voice be is too loud. Or that yes. your right. voice is too That's loud. Right. Yeah. It could be that this person is very sensitive and they're picking up on someone's uh something about someone's attitude Mm -hmm.
2: yeah
1: um and they're not um not so tethered to social expectations Mm -hmm. that they're going to override all Mm -hmm. of that Mm -hmm. and you know disregard that in favor of a superficial social interaction that's quote-unquote, expected. Right. And And we're
0: not seeing it's normal. I mean, I think we have a a society that sort of normalizes being fake, in a sense. There's being polite, right? There's being polite. There's choosing not to say something as opposed to saying something nice. Which we call using your brain filter.
1: Right. Um. Right.
0: Um, But what I'm always interested in and happy to see is the, the, the aspect of coercion Increasingly being removed. From
1: right. And you can't really just remove it without leaving a vacuum. So, right. what I work very hard on doing is re- really replacing that with teaching people things that will be of benefit to them. Yeah. So, as they are ready and as they want to know as Mm -hmm. they are receptive to it. So, for example, in my groups, I don't have a set curriculum, I don't have a manualized instruction, I'm responsive to my students' complaints and concerns. Mm -hmm. And if you start with what's relevant to them, you don't have to motivate with trinkets. Right. Right. Because Mm -hmm. you're authentically and genuinely meeting their needs, yep. right, and that's reinforcement. Sure, We oh, absolutely <laughs> it is, we, right. Absolutely, right. It right. is yeah. but it is the most. Um, it's the most human way of reinforcing. I mean, we ignore the the principles of behavioral intervention at our peril. We mm-hmm. have to recognize what is reinforcement, and we have to have to respect that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had uh, a lot of experience. Uh, working with behaviorists early on in this part of my career, and it they taught me a lot, mm-hmm. um, and yet at the same time, for teaching social learning, for teaching that those um, concepts and the underlying principles of uh, social interaction, I I find that for the most part, those More prescriptive behavioral approaches are, they're too rigid, they're too formulaic, and they don't work in the real world. So, for example, you know, if we tell a student, uh, if we give them a formula for joining a group, you know, if we try to say you walk up to them, you make eye contact, you say, hi, may I play with you, what is usually the answer on the playground? No. No. Mm -hmm. (laughs) because that's not what people usually do. No. Right.
2: And, so and yeah, and the kids come off as robotic and stilted and mm-hmm. you know and and other kids are going to look at them and go odd, right. not you know like go away, not expected. Right. Um and that's it it doesn't work in the real world.
1: Right. Social interaction is um is Emergent, yes. it has emergent fluid fluid fluid. properties, yeah. oh, yes. and you know that it's not very predictable. No. And I, I work with my students all the time on the idea, and parents that I work with, and teachers that just because this child has been identified as having some kind of social learning challenge, um, that doesn't mean that everybody else has a polished set of social skills is, and everyone else is going to do, respond in the, you know, the, right. the if typical enga- way. They engage the protocol. Right. If they right. Enga- right. if they right. simply engage the protocol, everything will be fine. It's messier than that. Yeah.
0: Well, that's why we should figure out a way to translate like fluid dynamics, you know, it's mm-hmm. to translate fluid dynamics into the to the social realm and, and the way that things are just constantly yeah. shifting.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I use the word emergent yeah. deliberately it's a, it's a, yes, because, it, you inter- know, what, from what little I know about chaos theory and uh, that concept of emergence, it fits the social interaction paradigm pretty well. Indeed. And so we need yes. to respect that. And so that's why I focus on... Uh, working on core, foundational, social, cognitive concepts. Flexible thinking, perspective taking, self-regulation, what the social thinking community calls thinking as part of a group Mm -hmm. versus just me thinking, Mm -hmm. not that just me thinking is a bad thing. Right. Um, So those foundational concepts, um, I actually trust My students and I trust people in general to be able to apply those concepts when it benefits them. Right. And when it makes sense. Yeah. When it makes sense for them. Mm -hmm. They they actually do. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Do you
3: notice a difference, um, I mean I I have my theories about this, but do you notice a difference um, in this concept of what you refer to as self-regulation? So being able to look at someone's body or the way that they're moving or the way that they're thinking or feeling in that moment, how that affects then the next step in their social interaction. Um,
1: um, give me an example. Yeah, so what, what, what I'm
3: thinking of is if you've got someone who comes into your room and is clearly not regulated, let's say, um, is maybe highly distracted, is pulled away, body posturing is different, right. maybe not as engaged, how do you, and this kind of gets to my next question about accommodation, so how do you support someone in that space being able to then shift themselves into a social experience? And does that take place quickly, or is that sometimes, you know, I mean, each person's going to be different, so what's your experience with that?
1: Um, my experience with that has been that that, that professional Demand that meeting that person where they are has provided me with a lot Mm -hmm. of um, opportunity for personal growth. Mm -hmm. Patience is not a quality I was born with, and I have learned over time that maybe, maybe that's the whole session. Maybe um, being, uh, you know, focusing on helping that person. Um, find a a a concrete hook or mm-hmm. a strategy, or mm-hmm. giving them some cho- choices, some space in which to self-regulate. Right. To recognize: is this anxiety? Is there something about the lighting in this room? Mm-hmm. Is it something a memory of something that happened last week yeah. that's activating? that is more important to attend to and slow down than to try to spackle over it in order to get the session where I thought I wanted Uh it to go. And so that is also an opportunity for me to self-disclose with my student or Uh whoever I'm working with that I'm, you know, I had a plan for today and you can see it on the board and it's got visuals and drawings out to the side, but um, maybe we're not going to get to all four of these things Mm -hmm. today because I'm seeing this. Right. What do you think would be the most important thing, and when do you think we might get to Mm -hmm. it, and what would it take to get there? Right. Sometimes we need to have a dance party. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we need to turn the lights off and um, just have the natural light coming in from outside, and we need to lie on the floor Mm -hmm. and breathe. And you know what? Everybody else in the group goes along with it because they know, other students know, because they've been dragged through a group where someone is really dysregulated and everybody's trying to contain that person and respond to that person. Students have been dragged through enough of those experiences that I've never had a problem getting a whole group to lie down on the floor and breathe or, you know, do some stretching, like I said, have a dance party, or maybe when we're ready, maybe we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about last week Mm -hmm. or whatever it was. And it sounds like, you
3: know, in that process, which I love, is you're modeling both the flexible thinking but also teaching empathy or Mm -hmm. the application of empathy of understanding what somebody else has been through before. Oh, I know that feeling. I know what it feels like to be totally flooded by something. How can I support this person to get through that?
1: Absolutely, and when, if I am um, honest and transparent and authentic in saying, oh boy, I I can see what's happening here, I have felt that way before Mm -hmm. too. Anybody else? Yeah. um, It opens the door for other people to say, yeah, I, you know, I I felt that way Mm -hmm. a few weeks ago or whatever. Mm -hmm. So... It's not that it's necessarily. I don't want to make it sound like it's an encounter group or like EST from the seventies or anything like that. I'm not running no, S group. no, no. I, I but understand. to make a little yeah. bit of space there, yeah, really helps. And students yeah. really quickly catch on that we're not gonna we're not gonna you know go bumping along through dysregulation, through somebody having a feeling or an opinion and just for the sake of getting through today's right. preordained lesson. There you go. Um, they quickly get that and actually if you pause from then on, um the funny thing is people tend to regulate, re regulate, uh, quite a bit faster mm-hmm. after they come to trust that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah.
2: So I think we would all agree that that's important, and I think we all try to do that with the kids that we work with. Is that something you address in the groups you do for parents? Um, Because I certainly have worked with a fair number of parents who have a hard time doing that. So just wondering what sort of strategies that you suggest, or or what, you know, what you can say to parents that struggle to do that effectively.
1: Well, again, going To that broader level of culture and identity, um, one of the things that parents, and you know, I'm speaking as a parent of a child with some social learning challenges, and as a parent of a child without those particular challenges, um, parents really struggle with that question of identity. You know, we're the Wilsons. We get a lot of stuff done. Mm-hmm. You know, we're the Smiths. We go, we do a lot of sports. Mm-hmm. You know, those those ideas that we have about ourselves and what our families will be like, you know, for everyone who has children, um, it, it shifts and changes over time. But when parents have difficulty... Because no one's really helping them with this. Right. It's not something anyone is born knowing how to do. Nobody gives you a
0: manual when you have kids, Mm -hmm. regardless of whether you're neurotypical or not. Right.
1: Right. (laughs) But if you have children who are neuroatypical, then, you know, there is a piece of work for parents to do. And it's just work. It's just work. It's okay. But it is effort to... um, to make that shift in an adaptive way that reflects understanding your child's identity, but also how that impacts your family's identity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I do hear parents kind of struggling with things like, I thought we would be able to go to a Halloween carnival. I can't <laughs> go to the Halloween right? right. Oh yep. god, the Halloween no work art. show. Yeah, no Halloween, fire. you know, right, we're getting a costume on. Right. Yeah. Halloween mm-hmm. even, mm-hmm. right? It's a ridiculous idea mm-hmm. that everybody's gonna dress up in yeah. costumes and get candy. And yet, you know, most neurotypical kids will just say okay, Uh (laughs) everybody's doing that, so I guess we're going to do that because I'm part of everybody, and that's what everybody does. But, you know, when you have a child who is neuroatypical, making that shift in terms of identity is a really good foundational place to start. And so when you start accepting that maybe you can't get 10 items at Trader Joe's, maybe you get three at a time, um, and maybe that's a skill that you build up to over a period of time. That's a big adjustment. Yeah. Yes. And, but that is part of being an adaptive, flexible thinker. And so if if we want our children to develop flexible thinking skills, then it's great when we can model it ourselves and go, you know, oh, I, I know that that trip was a disaster to Trader Joe's, I was really having a big stretch. I was really having trouble being a flexible thinker and figuring out, instead of the 12 things I planned to get, figuring out what the most important three were. Mm -hmm. So next time, I'm going to try to be more flexible, and maybe I'm going to underline the top three things that I really need to get. Yep. I mean, I'm speaking as experienced as someone who has been one of those families that was, you know, helped out of Trader Joe's, Yeah. but it's not really optional if you don't get your groceries and the manager is escorting you out, right. um, those are things that, that do have a real impact yes. on families. Yeah. And so uh, recognizing that, but then recognizing that there, there's some work to do that adaptation yeah. for parents is important. Mm-hmm. What was your original question? Now I forgot. Well well I think well, we're getting how to support, to support the how to support
2: families. Because I think and I think that I really love that idea of how families define themselves. Yeah, it's a big because one. Because I've worked with a lot of families where to me, as someone not in the family, the solution seems easy. Right? So common scenario we've all dealt with this. We've got neurotypical kid or maybe even, you know, a differently, you know, neuro non typical kid than the right. one that's having the issue, which often happens. Um but it's, you know, Fourth of July fireworks show and this child is gonna have a meltdown, but this child really wants to go. Right? And so to me it seemed like, well, two parents, one of you take this child, the other one stay home with that child. But there I go, you know, not That's the, not our, how our family works That's not how our family together. works and we do everything together. Right. Right? And and people's notions of what their family looks like or their fantasies of what their family looks like they can really be struggling right and when we don't
1: address that as professionals with that reality with families and we start with solutions and problem solving kind of from the top down then it's kind of like what you were saying saying Peggy about you know if a student comes into a room and they're dysregulated well if we just start by trying to you know to stuff that down and get that under yeah. control. Yeah, get over there and talk to Johnny right now. Okay? Right. Okay,
3: we're going to talk about that game you played last week. Right. Not going to work. Go uh-huh. ask him three questions <laughs> about his right. weekend yeah. or whatever. Exactly. Right. Fail. It's yeah. the same yeah. thing for yeah. the parents. Yes. Yes. If we
1: try yes. to give parents yeah. Yeah. behavioral prescriptions mm-hmm. for, you know, you should split up. Right. And one of you take the kid to the Halloween party and one of you take the kid to, you know, not the Halloween party. Then it's also not going to really sit right Right. with them because there's something that's not that that's in their gut that's not really being heard. This also speaks, I think, to one of the things we we've been talking about is sort of an
0: intersectional approach because what what we what goes into any of our identities is to some degree inherent in us, and in other degrees, cultural bias that we've assimilated and mm-hmm. one of the things I notice about the the autistic people I know is that they seem to be much less um, influenced in, in a lot of ways by cultural biases right, right. in terms of of, of of absorbing the environment and, and who they are and I think in terms of train doing trainings for, for parents, whether it be I mean for adults, whether it be teachers, parents, police um, yeah. Right. In, oh, yeah. in terms of of how much of what we determine is normal, quote, unquote. Right. Um, and what we think is, you know, quote, unquote, normal for ourselves. Is that really true and accurate for for us? And what are we kind of imposing in terms of demands on others? What are we imposing? Does it make sense? Is it to the benefit of. Life quality for everybody. Right? I mean, these to me, these are important things to be thinking about, especially in doing cross cultural work and yeah. working
2: with LGBTQ right. people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think asking families questions that go beyond what we typically ask them. So, the family that I just mentioned, it actually wasn't a family thing. Because mm-hmm. I knew this couple and they had, you know, done that strategy before. But what it was that was so interesting was that they belonged to sort of the parenting, um, I, don't even, like, I don't even know the right word, is. it's almost like support culture. Parenting like, community. Parenting community. And the mom said she would have felt incredibly shamed if they didn't all show up. Right. Shame. <laughs> there, wow. And that's what I was gonna say earlier. It's like this acceptance of this
3: is our family's gonna look different. Right. And I know that's right. kind of off a little bit, maybe we don't want to go too deep into that. But right. but it but it was this still
2: and this this bind of, you know, when when you have a child who is not neurotypical and you reach out to parenting communities for support, and then the very community that you reached out to right, then has their own right. ideas of what you should and should not mm-hmm. be able to do, it just, I think, puts people in a bind. And so then how to figure out all those differing levels and all those areas of intersection and, and how to help people through that.
1: Right. right. Yeah. You know, I, and sometimes if, if parents subscribe to a particular parenting approach that really speaks to them, it could be that that's something that they... Feel would have benefited them if they had been parented that way, but when you become a parent of any child, part of your work is to become more aware and peel away the layers of what belongs to you and what belongs to your child, what benefits what would have been of benefit to you, maybe, and what would really benefit yeah. this child? And that's and they're why it's always
3: the same thing. No, no. they're and not they're balanced,
1: too. All yeah. right. I
3: mean, if you swing all the way over to, I mean, for me, I see parents where they. Swing all the way over to being completely matching to the child, then the child doesn't have the coping skills to deal with real life. Sometimes, right? And then there's the swing of I'm going to go all the way over here. I'm going to parent the way that I want to do it. Da da da. And now you're not halfway between. So it's it's this balance. It's a dance between the two. And it's, the reality it's, it's is, emerges. we all
1: screw that up a lot yeah, as parents. Completely. You know, we all every day, yeah, every hour. We all have the mm-hmm. swing and the miss. And then yeah. sometimes we know we've knocked it out of the park, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's just good enough to get us around the bases. Yeah, make (laughs) it through Trader Jazz, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. but it's there's an extra um, piece of work. Like I said, for parents when a child is neuroatypical, they they may need some support from parents, just like, you know, Deb, as you mentioned, if you have a child who is um, LGBTQ, Mm -hmm. any of those or any shade of any of those. There's some work for parents to do that's, a, a, if parents identify as um, heterosexual, for example, that's also, you know, reaching across that divide to support that child and give them what they need. Right. So it's not really that different. People do this. We, we have children who, you know, are not carbon copies of us in every way. But the other phenomenon that happens is sometimes when parents have a child with social learning challenges, they themselves have social learning challenges, right? <laughs> um, they no,
2: may, we've, we've never met families
1: right? like that. <laughs> <laughs> and even if you don't, as a parent, have identified social learning challenges, we all remember that thing that happened in fourth grade where no, we blurted the thing out. <laughs> <right? laughs> Sorry, I'm re traumatizing everybody. We've all had our moments yeah. where social learning was not a smooth and elegant process. We make mistakes and we learn from them, or we make the mistake multiple times and we don't learn from it. Sometimes it's the, you know, the, 20th time that we make that social mistake that we finally go, Ah, I know what I did there. Yeah. And so our social mistakes, everyone's, are attached to a great deal of shame. Yep. And that's why, you know, when I'm I'm presenting in San Francisco next week at EdRev, and the title is Social Learning Without Shame. Because the shame that we attach to it is qualitatively different then the shame that we attach to missing those three questions on Mm -hmm. a math quiz. Mm -hmm. It's very, very Mm -hmm. different. But you know what? It's all learning. Right. 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 Well, but I think it's, to me, it's a very
0: kind of interesting, in in the political times we live in, where we have people like um, Trump who are sort of reveling in being, you know, non-politically correct, quote, unquote. Yeah. And I think there's a part of that that, Um, when you make a faux pas or when you do something that gets negative um, feedback that there is something deeply shaming in that and if you are somebody who is sensitive to shame and wants to live in a world without shame I think the one of the alternatives is to simply turn it around and say well I don't have to say or do anything that's going to be for anybody else's comfort I'm going to um, tell it like it is quote unquote and And there's this kind of violent reaction, you know, I I see what's happening in that arena as sort of like a a violent reaction against um, social skills and and having to have interactions with people that take into account their subjective reality. For example, I've seen people get very upset when being corrected about pronouns. Right. 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 And so instead of saying, oh, sorry, you know, and then using the pronouns that somebody...
1: Right.
0: Requests to say, well, that's <laughs> not even a real thing. Like, right. Why,
1: well, <laughs> why, why use, do I have to care? Well, right? and to right. use our perspective taking skills on a regular basis, to use our inhibition skills to hold right. back and say, wait, oh, little, little yellow light blinking, maybe I'm not gonna add that into the conversation just yet. <laughs> right. It's, it's work mm-hmm. to do these things. I, I will freely admit that You know, I I take a certain perverse glee in um, all the crazy things that Charles Barkley says. Mm -hmm. Um, At one point he was, um, actually at several points he's threatened to run as governor of my home state. And Mm -hmm. there's a little part of me, that part of me that has to, you know, I teach social, so I'm kind of expected to, you know, be able to bring some social skills to the table. And so I, I make an effort, I do my best, but there's something about watching a Charles Barkley character say things that he's, you know, probably shouldn't be said. That, uh, that <laughs> I, there's, right? <laughs> but at the same time, he also has had to reckon with the impact of. Statements he's made, and he has had to learn from some of those things. Sooner or later, everybody's bill comes due. And so, if you have some social learning challenge, and um, just because it's true, it's a fact Mm -hmm. that um, somebody has bad breath, and you point it out, well, there is a part of that where if we know that this person has a neurologically based social learning difference, Um, maybe we need to be a little more flexible and tolerant and just go brush our teeth. But maybe we also need, over time, not as a quick fix, but we need to help people understand the impact of their behavior on others. Not from the standpoint of shaming or blaming, but from the standpoint of understanding that connection stringing those beads together on the necklace to understand that my behavior makes an impact on another person's brain and that if it's a negative impression that may influence the way that person treats me or responds to me next time I see them and so how do I manage myself in a way that makes the impression on other people that I would prefer to make on them?
0: Well, it also I think one of the things that I think needs to get talked about as well again from an intersectional perspective is when we're talking about how people behave with one another there's also a way that that can be oppressive, right? So when I'm thinking about people of color for example, one of the things that happens a lot um, and you're on Twitter, right? You, you, You see this is that um I don't think I've ever seen any group of people treated worse on Twitter than black women, right and uh, so sometimes what ends up happening is that kind of the quote unquote proper way to speak to one another or quote unquote people being polite ends up being sort of used to silence
1: tone policing right and right. tone policing ends
0: up being used to to silence members of oppressed groups, and so I think. Keeping that in mind as well, when we're working on social skills development with people, like how do you encourage someone to um, sort of engage with others as respectfully as possible, while also understanding that many people, for identity issues, for a variety of them, don't are not given the same latitude. Uh, yeah, they're not. Well, they're not. They're not given the same respect. They're not given the same. Um, they're they're not given the the same. I can't think of the word I'm I'm wanting. No, I know but, what you mean you know, in any given considered. workplace.
1: Yeah, pretty much the only person who's allowed in any workplace I've been in large organization, the only person who's ever allowed to express anger or frustration is usually a white male. Right. So, um, you know, there is that aspect of you know the. People who are from a more dominant culture uh, do have a lot more latitude. And at the same time, you know, if we support each individual in their social learning, again, going back to that idea of as it is of benefit to them, Mm -hmm. without putting all of the onus or burden on them to behave in some correct way, um but to really kind of operate from what, what is in their um, genuine interest, in not what we project. Interest. Right, in mm-hmm. their
0: genuine interest, and also in the interest, again, because I do think citizenship is hugely important, so how do we, how do we engage each other um, as fellow citizens, as neighbors, as fellow human beings on the planet in a way that is going to be globally supportive?
1: Right. Right, to, right. To and everyone getting along and everyone being friends with each other is not actually one no. of the goals. No. Right? No. Cognitive conflict is um, productive. Conflict resolution, man. It is. <laughs> um, it's important. <laughs> but, you know, when I'm working with kids on concepts around friendship, a lot of the work that we're doing is around deconstructing, at first, That's fantasies um, messages that they yes. have been given about what is um, necessary, what everyone else has, supposedly. what people's
0: expectations are. It goes back right. also to the whole question of expectations, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And the degree to which your reality or the the, the, re, the real interaction you have with people meets your expectations, especially if you're
2: not consciously aware of what they are, right? So, Kelly, I have an interesting question for you. Okay. Speaking of expectations. So, I work with a lot of children who are on the spectrum, who tend to be pretty rigid in their thinking, and and flexible thinking is something that we worked on. But several of the kids that I work with have been very angry lately that Donald Trump still has his phone.
1: That he still has his phone. Yes,
2: one in particular came in very upset that he said, and it's a family that when he misbehaves, they take away his phone. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. and was very upset that if he said some of the stuff that was being said, he would have lost his phone. So true. <laughs> very true.
1: But you know what? I also have students who point out to me that they are expected to behave a certain way and every, they're under a lot of scrutiny as far as, I don't know, sharing or Mm -hmm. making friendly statements or giving compliments or whatever it is that, you know, that expectation that Deb was talking about. Who, ask me, why isn't Grace in this group? Why, you know, some kid at at school who, you know, is also not displaying the behavior that, you know, people are are saying is pro-social behavior, why aren't Jason, Michael, and Tariq in this group? Um, because I'm doing all the flexible thinking in this group Mm -hmm. and when I do flexible thinking, they just disregard me or they say, no, you can't have a turn or they change the rules in handball. Oh my gosh, handball. Right? Right. They're changing the rules. Right? (laughs) But if they're in charge, I mean. Kids with social status, high social status, can change the rules. The rule is they can change the rules. And the rule is if you don't have the social status, then you can't change the rule. Mm -hmm. And guess what? When kids who are more socially sophisticated and privileged and use all of those neurotypical tricks and techniques, when they change the rules, guess who's out? Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right. Our students. Of course. So, you know, you have to be honest with students and say, That is a very good point, and that is the reality. And then, you know, we need to work on what can we do. Well, this also speaks to one of the things we were talking about in
0: terms of school. I mean, when most of our children are in sort of typical public schools, some of them are in a private school environment, and there are differing things that you can do to impact school culture, Mm -hmm. right, depending on what your setting is and depending on the Right. But but many of us um, work with children who are in a typical public school environment. Right, right. And so, yeah. when you know that there is, there are certain um, cultural, both large and small, C okay. factors at hand, and you know that there are those kinds of of rules about who has privilege in that situation, we right. you know what do you do with that? Do you And if you think it might be useful to start encouraging kids to actively speak about process and to talk about, well, what are the unspoken cultural rules in this setting, right? Right. What What are are the hidden social rules? What are the, right, and, and what if you want to develop that kind of environment, right, in that setting where people start to be more consciously aware of this and be able to speak to it, what would that be like? And how open are the various environments to do that? now I know in, in private school settings, a lot of them that's part of what they do right mm-hmm. yes, not all, but, but, not but, all. But, but part but the vast majority of students are in public school settings, and you know and a lot of them are in environments where they can't even get funding for books, so you know how how does there get to be an impact on the students we're raising and their ways of interacting with each other?
1: Well, this is part of of my criticism of the idea of a special education system versus a regular education system. When we have segregated training and segregated educational systems, when, when we start with the premise of essentially an apartheid system, then there are all kinds of beliefs and assumptions that spin off from that. And one of the most pernicious is the belief that only special education teachers and only special Mm -hmm. education specialists have the specialized knowledge to deal with these specialized problems Uh that these specialized people have. Really? Magical. It's not magic. And it's not rocket science. It's not that that challenging you do have to make some space for it which you know when you're in an environment where there is a lot of testing and there's a lot of pressure it is hard that's that's tough and that's a that's a genuine challenge and i have seen teachers in both independent schools and in public schools make a space to talk about what are the rules for example there was a classroom um, where I was consulting, and um, one particular student was having a very difficult time, new student, integrating into the school. Um, He was quite a bit younger than the other students and had been placed in a grade where he was, you know, his peers were quite a bit older than he was. And um, he also has some social learning challenges And he was really, really having a lot of difficulty, a fifth grader, going underneath desks um, when assignments were given, reading and not being able to shift out of preferred activities. Um, And students were, there was was something in the water. Students were over-correcting him, telling him, you know, you're not supposed to do that right now. And then three other people would correct him. So um, the teachers and I worked together to shape a structured conversation um, where they would have some guidelines for participating in the conversation that were set out very clearly at the beginning. Um, So it was very clearly structured, but students walked right through the door when we opened up questions like, what are the hidden social rules for policing? your friend's behavior. What are the hidden social rules for policing other people's behavior? Students picked up very quickly on the idea that, oh yeah, you know, I think we correct this guy. They named him. Yeah. I think we correct him a lot more and if it was one of my friends doing something, I don't think I would do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, it really, it shifted things quite a bit. For the Better, mm-hmm. so you know that going back to the very beginning of our conversation, that social model of disability—if we just looked at that particular student who was going under desks, who um, was muttering, he was making violent drawings, he was really showing the effects of the stress of of that intersection of his abilities, his social abilities, and the environment. We could really focus on him, and we could really pathologize him um, from a medical model standpoint. But when we look at the intersection of what are the skills he needs, and he did need some skills, and he did do some work. Right. And what does everybody else need in the environment to make this work better? Um, that's where we see some progress. hmm mm-hmm. And that takes work.
0: Yeah, and I think part of what we're seeing, at least again, I'm speaking from the pub- the public sector, the public school sector, is where I had had it, right? Okay, and yeah. the people I work with, and also you know in a variety of neighborhoods with a variety of socioeconomic access, right? And how how do we get these things um, used? in settings where there aren't necessarily the resources. And right. it's it's a I think it's a really it's a, a hard question. I don't I don't have any specific answers other than um, completely redoing the way public education is done. But every time it seems to get redone, it gets done in another way that's worse
2: than the last yeah.
0: way.
1: Well what what I work on with parents, parents in particular and teachers as well is that You know, when you're looking at something and it seems like a global, huge challenge, pick one thing and do one thing. So, Deborah Budding, you could share this podcast with a group of teachers. You could, you know, pick one concrete thing that you can do today. So, if we're working with a student on their social skills or friendships, uh, we can wring our hands a lot, and if we're looking at the public school system and we're looking at the way things are set up, we can really fall into a lot of despair. Mm-hmm. But if you pick one thing right just and start just small think about that one thing and start small small, then you develop a sense of agency, yeah, and that's one thing that my students in particular um, have been trained out of unfortunately non-compliance
0: is a social skill that's yeah. right mm-hmm. <laughs> that's right so and but get having, your t-shirts
1: being Sorry. told that you you have um you have a right to determine what supports would be of most benefit to you is an important thing to tell kids i you know uh, for example i have a group of um tween and young teen girls that I work with, I've been working with them for a while. So we've done a lot of work on flexible thinking and perspective taking and thinking as part of a group. And these girls are feeling a lot more solid in those skills. Um, They also are very fortunate, they have families who are have been willing to be educated and think differently. And so they're not expecting these girls to use their f- mm-hmm. A++ flexible thinking, perspective taking, and self-regulation at all times. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a budget, a daily budget, a weekly budget, that you know we're, we're building skills and we're making an effort, just mm-hmm. like everyone else. Mm-hmm. So starting there, mm-hmm. these girls, um, their parents, had expressed some concern about difficulty with boundaries. You know, when you're looking at any person with a social learning disability mm-hmm. or learning difference, um, you are talking about a person who um, faces some unique vulnerability mm-hmm. as they are going through the teen years and yes. developing into young adulthood. The whole boundary thing, I'm so really glad you brought that up. So it's so yep. interesting i I was okay, I said right that's that's well within my purview. I'm not gonna do um sex ed in a broad sense. that's not in my square. I know it's in my square, and there are other people who do that better, but boundaries and consent that is very much in my neighborhood
0: right. So
1: guess what I found? When I went looking for material, like I, I looked at research, and then I also just did a broader Google search looking for ideas for how to teach it. And you found nothing. It. Yeah. <laughs> um, worse than that. When I looked, I, when try this at home. When you Google um, about teaching boundaries, teaching consent for tweens and teens, without putting the modifier of autism in there whatsoever, you get a lot of stuff that it's mixed. There's some that's about teaching them how to manage themselves, but there's also a great deal out there about how to set effective boundaries to protect yourself. You know, how to set boundaries effectively, how to navigate saying no to people, all of that kind of stuff. When you Google, Teaching boundaries, teaching consent for tweens, teens, autism spectrum. You get a whole different set of stuff, and it's all about controlling the individual and making sure they don't violate other people's boundaries. So what's the message that these students get? You don't really have a right to establish boundaries for yourself, You are the intruder on other people's boundaries. So that's interesting because we do know, we do have pretty good data on sexual abuse rates for students who um, have a developmental disability or difference. That was, before I did this, my work was in child maltreatment and child sexual abuse I worked at the National Children's Advocacy Center and the Violence Intervention Program at L.A. County USC Hospital, and a lot of the the population that came in, whether I recognized it at the time or not, were um, individuals with um, a social learning Mm -hmm. challenge.
0: Hugely,
1: hugely important. Yeah, yeah.
0: hugely. Oh, a whole other <laughs> podcast. yeah. Oh, we yes. will. Yeah, we yeah. definitely will. Um, mm-hmm. Because there is, I mean, with, within that whole realm, it, there is such a tremendous victim blaming. Stance anyway. Ready, you know, ready. Oh, you know ready. Right. Oh, without yes. it, you know, that is that intersectional you get a, piece, right? You, get, you got assaulted. What, what did, you did you do? Right. Right. What what you you wearing? Wearing? Yes. right. What were you wearing? Yes. What right. were you wearing? Right. And then
1: when you add that layer of social, cognitive challenges, when you add that, you know, the then the questions are: Why didn't you know what this person's intentions were? Right. How could you have? Mm-hmm. Right. gone with this person, how mm-hmm. could you have believed that? How could you have trusted that? Right? right. So Because I was
0: trained to be worried about what that person wanted and controlling myself. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right exactly. Um, yeah, and it, this is where you know,
1: like uh, autistic adults who um, whose voices were fortunately hearing more and more from, like Lydia X Z Brown. Oh, they're great. Um, and yeah, a lot of yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Shane Newmeyer. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of voices that we're hearing now are giving us firsthand information. They probably were all along, but um, we're not. We weren't listening. Oh, mm-hmm. The advent of um, online. Yeah information and discussion has been of tremendous benefit. Yes. I mean, this is why when I keep
0: reading these, these
1: hot takes and
0: think pieces on how the Internet is destroying society and ruining people's relationships, I'm thinking, I okay, I mean, sure, but I know a lot more people, especially people with disabilities, who have Developed you know, a way to now have relationships and hook right. with people who understand them and, and uh, interact effectively. Right. They never had
1: that mm-hmm. ability before. Right. I, I read something um, that came across my newsfeed or something like that um, from a young man named Kaite Davidson um, a couple of years ago and met with Kaite friend of mine uh named Trisha and I went to meet with Kaite to talk about um advocacy, how to how to shape a neurodiversity advocacy group, um, how to help that take take shape. And Kaite was tremendously um helpful to us. And um I wouldn't have known about Kaite if I hadn't seen his writing come across, and it was Kaite who turned me on to the idea that probably one of uh, the neurodiversity movement's um, most informed allies could be people who had done organizing work for LGBTQ uh,
2: Absolutely. Causes.
1: And I asked my son about it. Um, I, unfortunately, Kaite died not long after I met him. Oh, no, And it was a, a very unusual experience for this sparkling, interesting, uh, thoughtful young person to come into my life and then suddenly, in the blink of an eye, to be gone. And I, I was really um, reeling a bit from that. And so I, it was unusual conversation between my son and I, but I asked him, you know, why do you think Kaite thought that... LGBTQ organizers might be a particular ally. And he said, well, mom, you know, gender differences and sexuality differences is not something that's in your pants. It's just a different kind of neurodiversity.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, thanks for pointing that out.
0: There's That Venn diagram has a huge amount of overlap in it
1: it does and i i do see that many of my students um who are neuroatypical um are less tethered to social uh, pressure to conform in terms of gender and sexuality they they do we've talked about this before they do tend to be more um more fluid and dynamic
0: yeah yeah um Which also means, depending on the setting they're in, um, it can mean, you know, the exponential, more BS that they have to Mm -hmm. deal with, Mm -hmm. too. Sure. Um, Depending on where they they are. Right. Um, So, um, we're looking at the time. Man, it's flown. Mm -hmm. Yes, it has. So, uh, we should probably kind of wrap this up. To be continued. To be continued. Mm Because I'm talking about Social things is is hugely important. So we hope that you will come back and visit us another time. I would be glad soon. to come back. For that would be part awesome.
2: Two. There you go.
1: Um, can you tell folks how to get in touch with you? Um, sure. Uh, just you know, Google me, Kelly Priest, or Kelly Priest and Associates. Um, i your Twitter. Out there, uh, Twitter is Kelly Priest A. Kelly Priest A. Mm-hmm. On the Twitters. On the Twitters. And um, yeah, I, if you happen to be in San Francisco next weekend, if you're going to Ed Rev, Education Revolution, it is sponsored by Parent Education Network, and I'll be speaking there about social learning without shame. Um, but I'm hoping to do more speaking and more work on social learning without shame. Um, because that is really the core mm-hmm. of what I do, and it's um, something that I think um, not just people who are neuroatypical in their social development, we could all use a little bit um, more freedom to do our social learning uh, without shame attached to it. Yeah, absolutely. So, And maybe what, what what we can do, too, is that
0: you can um, forward us uh, some links and articles that you think would be useful, and we can put them up on the show notes.
1: I would love to. I will do that. Okay. And uh, this has been so much fun. Thank you so, so much so for having me. Having me. Yeah. It's a pleasure. Let's do this every Saturday. <laughs> sure. Sure.
0: <laughs> so, uh, oh, uh, I'm at uh, Nebula63 on the Twitters. I don't do the Facebook because it's the devil.
2: and I'm at Jamie B PhD. Same about Facebook.
1: Oh man, I'm surrounded. I'm on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> okay. we, we want to you be associates on Facebook.
0: <laughs> and um, Peggy has a website, which is really good. Yeah, I have a website. It's on the yeah. web, and our website.
3: Yeah. yeah, I have an email address. I exist, you know. It's she does. True. Exist. I do exist. Oh, yes. follow up, I want to let the listeners know, I conquered the log boss. Yes. Yay, log boss. Right. But it was really due to your 13-year-old son. <laughs> <laughs> I did very little. So he got me over that log, and... Um,
0: now, now on onto your next video game. That's
3: right. That's we'll to take some out. time. Oh, okay. Meta.
1: If you want to talk, we could do a whole podcast on video games and social interaction. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love S- Super Mario Brothers multiplayer games for collaboration yes. and thinking as oh, part yeah. of a group. So much fun. Oh, yeah. yeah. The most fun way to do it. Oh, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. So, um... We'll be be back back and we'll see y'all soon. Thanks for listening. See ya. Bye, Bye, everyone.